Welcome to Tangents from Coin Center. I'm Jerry Brito, and I've got Peter Van Valkenburg with me. Hi, Peter. Hey, Jerry. Uh, so let's talk um, wonky Bitcoin cryptocurrency regulation. Um, so FinCEN uh, extended the comment period for its crypto rulemaking um, in a really odd way, but nonetheless, it's a bit of a bit of a victory in the battle. Um, right. How do we? What, what what makes it odd, Jerry? <laughs> well, we what makes it odd is that this is still one rulemaking. And if you remember, this is a rulemaking that they dumped on us the 18th of December, right? So the Friday before Christmas week. I was right in the middle of making a Yule log. That's a yeah. true story. You can ask me for pictures on Twitter. And they gave us, they gave the public 15 days to comment, right? 15 calendar days. So in between that, you'd had weekends and the holidays. So really effectively, it was something more close to uh, like eight working days, which is really unusual because typically um, you get 60 days. Yeah. And, um, and as we wrote and have said several times, when it comes to like big changes at financial institutions and their record keeping rules, sometimes banks get as many as six years to effectively <laughs> offer comment before something's finally finished. So Right. And so it was clear that the only reason, so that, you know, they, the the you know notice of proposed rulemaking had some gestures at, toward saying this is an emergency, right? But those all clearly you know they didn't make any sense. So really, the, only, the thing that was happening here, the reason this was rushed through, is because the administration was ending, and the secretary wanted to get this done before he left office, right? So that he could make sure that this was finalized and done. Um, and of course, that's not a good reason to short shrift the public. Um, and so that would be, you know, in, in, in common period. So that would be something that, um, you know, among many other things would be part of a challenge in court as to the process by which this rule was made. It was arbitrary and capricious. So, um, it seems like the secretary relented and he's giving more time for the public to comment. So we kind of won. We kind of won. Um, we kind of won in this respect. Our goal all along had been to try to get this rulemaking um, to not be finalized before the 20th, to not be finalized during this administration. Because we knew that if we could get the rulemaking to go into the next administration, for one thing, we know that um, uh, the next uh, president has already said um, they will immediately freeze all regulatory activity. Um, on minute one of the administration. So that's tomorrow at noon, less than 24 hours from now. They're going to freeze all regulation or all regulation that's in process in order to sort of take, a, take stock um, of it. And when they freeze this one, we think we're going to have a better shot at getting something more reasonable with a new administration that isn't so desperately committed um, as this last one was. Um, so we won a battle right? Because we did get it into the next administration. It will be frozen. We haven't won the war, right? This rule could be finalized, you know, next month. Uh, so we're not out of the woods yet, but kind of recognizing what we pointed out in our, one of the, one of the things that we pointed out in our comment is, is that really this proposed rule was trying to do two things. One was it was creating a cash transaction report requirement for financial institutions that dealt in crypto, 
right? So for exchanges, where just like banks have to report automatically in what's called a CTR, a cash transaction report, anytime um, a customer withdraws or deposits $10,000 or more in cash, they have to automatically report that to FinCEN, to the government, um, you would create, you know, this rule would create uh, basically the same requirement for crypto, where anytime somebody uh, withdraws or deposits $10,000 or more in crypto to an FI, um, this would have to get reported. So that was one thing the rule did. And we said about that in our comment that, you know, we had no, nothing to say about that, yep. right? We don't like it, right? But it's, a bulk, it's a warrantless bulk surveillance statute, but it's the same thing that everybody's dealt with with cash since the 1970s. So if you're going to apply equal treatment to crypto, it's hard to complain, uh, aside from just overturning the BSA as a, as a general principle. I think that's right. And certainly in, you know, in eight workdays to respond to a rule, that's not the thing that we were going to spend our time addressing. So the rule had a second piece, which was record keeping, new record keeping requirements for crypto. Why don't you explain that? So the record keeping requirements would be that a regulated financial institution like an exchange would need to collect certain information about certain transactions. The transactions would be any crypto transaction over $3,000 in value. Um, and the information you have to collect for all those transactions over $3,000 in value is the obvious stuff, like the name of your customer and the amount that they're transacting in and any other like instructions that your customer gives you when they ask you to make the transaction. But the problematic part that we took a lot of issue with, um, both on constitutional grounds, privacy grounds, and just process grounds, is that you have to record your customer's counterparty, their name and their physical address. And so that's, that's, not, you know, that's not you when you have an account at Bank of America. That's the person you're paying with the cash you just withdrew from your account at Bank of America. And Bank of America, of course, doesn't know who that is with cash. And the same is often true of, say, Coinbase or any other Bitcoin exchange. If you, you know, take, take Bitcoin out, they don't know, you know where it's ultimately going, aside from you know, to you or to someone you're paying. They don't know the name or physical address of the people that you pay. And so requiring that they know that means they'd have to dig for that information somehow, um, which violates the privacy of those third parties who aren't even the customers of the institution. And um, it's just difficult that it's difficult to imagine any compliance regime that would be reliable. And so we, we would fear, and I think rightly, that exchanges would just stop supporting transactions with wallet addresses that weren't known to be hosted by other financial institutions. Right. Uh, and, it's, and, it's, and it's potentially also a problem uh, for smart contracts, right? Because smart contracts don't have physical addresses or names. And so um, it would be difficult to, for an exchange to comply with the law and allow customers to send crypto to smart contracts. Yeah. So, um, so that's the, that second piece of the rule is what we took a lot of exception to. Um, 
And quite frankly, it's what the vast majority of commenters were over 7,000 comments filed uh, with Vincent in this proceeding. Thank you to all of you who, who commented. Um, I think by far, I guess, I, I mean, we know that um, it's the most comments they've ever received in the last eight years, but I think probably in their history uh, yeah. for any one rulemaking. I suspect like, it's not like the, the FCC taking net neutrality comments where right. everyone on the internet has an opinion. FinCEN normally is dealing only with financial institutions and there are only so many of those. So they're not used to getting a whole bunch of comments. So this, right. would, this is probably historic for them. So um, what did they do? They extended the comment period for that first part, the CTR requirement, the new CTR requirement by 15 days. So, so still nowhere near 60 days total, um, but it yeah. does get us into the next administration, which is interesting. It gets us into the next administration, um, but again, there'll be a freeze. So we'll see what happens then, but we should have even more than 15 days. So that's one piece. But then for the um, record keeping piece, they gave 45 more days. Yeah. Okay. So this is odd because this right. is still one rulemaking. Yeah, have, getting, you, have you ever seen this before, Jerry, never. in all your days of administrative law? Never. never. We could turn this into like a, a mystery podcast. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, this is this is kind of like a good hypo for like a law school exam of something. Oh gosh, something here. The whole thing has been like if you look at our our comments to to FinCEN, both the first comment we filed and the second comment. You know, we started with procedural arguments that 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 that. That was your half of the comment, focusing on the APA and the lack of notice and all the norms and rules that had been broken in, in trying to rush this. We went to privacy arguments grounded in constitutional law, Fourth Amendment stuff, First Amendment stuff, because under the First Amendment, you have a right to donate anonymously, and the record-keeping rule would create lists of donors to nonprofits. And then um, when we started looking at the NDAA, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast, uh, we realized, oh, wait, this changes the statutory authority for rulemaking about crypto. And this, this is a new law that didn't actually go into effect until after the rulemaking was started. What statutory authority did they use? Oh, they used really weird statutory authority. So we filed another comment talking about continued procedural difficulties because they fudged the actual deadline for comments by a few days. Which and then secretly changed it without telling the public that they had a few more days to to comment. <laughs> and then we made those statutory authority arguments. So like, I'm just thinking back to law school. Like the only argument we didn't make in like one L law school classes is like a a, a torts argument. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, it would be a great law school hypo. I, I remember like taking exams and realizing that like you have to issue spot, and then you realize, oh god. They want me to talk about like five different areas of law and I have to write this in the next two hours. Like this would be a nightmare hypo. You'd be like, wait, you'd be talking with your friends afterwards. And you're like, wait, you didn't make the fourth amendment arguments. You only <laughs> That's right. Amendment. Exactly. Yeah. You're like, Oh crap. I'm going to die. I'm never going to make money to pay my loans back. Um, yeah. The tort that I would choose here would be uh, intentional infliction of emotional distress. <laughs> and I think in discovery, you might find the intent. But. And then you'd have to get through sovereign immunity. You know, if right. you're, if you're trying to sue Mnuchin directly, you'd be like, no, no, I'm acting as part of the state. Anyway. <laughs> um, so where were we? Um, so, yeah. So it's odd. Is it okay that it's odd? 
Oh, yeah. So, that. so, yeah. So, so extension. Uh, look, I mean, there's nothing in the statute in the APA that says that you have to give any time for comment. Yeah. Or I take it back. It says you have to give time for comment. It has no minimum. And right. it certainly has no requirement that it be contiguous or that it be the same for different parts of the rule. But I've never seen this, right? They, do have, to, they do have to review all the comments in the APA, right? They have to, they have to consider. Yes. They said that they did. They said they read all 7,000. Yeah. They said that they read all. Yes, yes. They said they read all seven thousand. I in, my my in like three days. <laughs> yeah, my um, feeling about that line is that that's boilerplate that they copied and pasted. Oops. Uh, yeah, that's that's my feeling because I, I don't think they could really say that they considered or even read seven thousand comments. And I guess that's okay because they weren't they weren't promulgating a final rule at that they point. Were they didn't right. They didn't even need to say that. Yeah. Um, but they said it, which leads me to believe that, again, that's boilerplate that they copy and pasted, which, you know, there's people think, you know, government is like this omniscient, omnipotent. It's it's just people. Well, maybe they're speed readers. You know, maybe they took an online course that I've always thought about taking. It's probably <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it's weird. Um, and now we have 15 days for the CTR and longer for the other. I think what that signals to me is that we're going to get the CTR. Um, and then the other thing, we'll have to wait and see what the next administration, you know, what they think. Quick note for people who've actually like written comments and read the whole thing and everything. You might be thinking, uh, Jerry, Peter, the CTR requirement had a requirement to report the name and physical address of the counterparty that the customer is paying in the transaction over $10,000 that triggers a CTR. Isn't that a problem too? Yes. Yes, it is. Yes. But in their weird comment extension, they were very clear in a couple different places. The only thing that the deadline is 15 days for is CTRs without counterparty identification on the CTR form. Uh, so counterparty identification on the CTR form and counterparty identification in the record-keeping rule, 45 days for comment. Not that it necessarily matters because... Both are going to get frozen by the incoming administration, we suspect. Um, And maybe it does matter because we clearly have more time to have a reasonable conversation about anything to do with counterparty identification. Right. So um, maybe that we should talk about the second comment that we filed, which we filed right before that initial comment period ended. Yeah, but after the last podcast that we recorded. Oh, we didn't discuss that in the last podcast. We did not. Yeah. So we had filed our our first comment. I ate too much Yule log. (laughs) So maybe we should talk about it briefly. Um, Again, our second comment, once again, had two parts. It had a piece on procedure, which I wrote, and it had a piece on legal authority, which you wrote. So quickly on procedure. um, So yeah, so basically this comment um, focused on two things that occurred to us or that we discovered after, you know, we had filed our first comment. So on procedural, what what turned out to be the case was that FinCEN, um, as I said earlier, they announced this rulemaking on December 18th, Friday, December 18th. And they said, you've got 15 days to comment. And uh, that would have been, oh, I forget, what's 15 days from uh, the 18th? Let's see, that's 28, the third, something like that? 
Sounds right. There's a reason I didn't get into like hard science though. The third, third of January, something like that. Right. So they said, okay, starting on the 18th, 15 days, that's like the third. And they went ahead and they published it in the federal register as you need to do with one of the notice of proposed rulemaking. And, and the, the um, notice of proposed rulemaking published in the federal register, you can get the hard copy, the very top, it says all comments due by January 3rd. And it's later on in the body, it says you've got 15 days. Um, and when you went to regulations.gov, which is the site where you go to submit comments, it's, it has a you know, clock that's counting down. It tells you comments are due by midnight on January 3rd. The problem is, is that although they announced it on the 18th, it didn't get published in the Federal Register until uh, the following Monday. So that's 19th, 21st. Uh, so 15 days from the 21st is not January 3rd. It's something like January 6th. I forget what, what the, the date was. So, um, but at the very top of the, um, you know, of, of the notice, it said January 3rd. And so did regulations like a website. So they were actually jipping us, if I can say that. I guess that's I not, not can't say that. I'm canceled now. <laughs> um, so not only were they giving us just 15 calendar days, just like eight work days, but actually they weren't because everybody was under the assumption. If you read the media reports, if you, again, if you go to regulations.gov and it tells you the deadline is, it was January 3rd, which was actually like 12 days, not 15, which is insane. And what's more insane right, right. is that- That's not the worst part. The worst part is what they did, did next. The worst part is that um, at some point, um, on the deadline, on the day of the deadline, they quietly changed it at the top of the website to be the correct time, January 6th. And they didn't make an announcement like, oh, whoops, we messed up. We started counting on the wrong date. You have three more days. They didn't say anything. They just changed it quietly. Somebody noticed it on Twitter. And, and it means. Yeah. Well, and we, we all started talking about it. Like when we talked about it with other people who were rushing to finish filing, right? And they were like, wait a minute, should... Should I take longer to to like edit this because I wrote it really fast because I had to? And do I have three more days or not? And then we would say like, well, I don't know. It, the Federal Register still says comments are due today. Uh, I know I know someone at a very very important civil liberties organization who had uh, coronavirus who was rushing to finish a comment um, while like sick, you know. And they were like, well, wait, what am I supposed to do? And I'm thinking like, I don't know. These people are. They're not really treating the public with respect. Right. And so, um, look, uh, people, so the point that we made in our comment is people relied to their detriment on the notice that was published in the Federal Register. Uh, The number of serious commenters who filed on the original (laughs) noticed deadline so thereby they gave up three more days that they legally, you know, let's say had include Coinbase, the EFF, MIT, Harvard, Johns Hopkins, um, uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, you know, the Blockchain Association. All these people rushed to meet that deadline because of the notice. And um, so, you know, again, procedurally, this, this thing was was a mess. And so we pointed that out in our we, we basically put it on the record for a potential court challenge. Yeah, it's kind of like a cherry on top of the existing procedural arguments that you made. 
but it's also good to have it um, in the record. Yeah. And so then let's talk about the uh, NDAA. Um, well, let's talk about the legal authority and then we, we can get to the, maybe in a minute we'll talk about the NDAA. Well, so, I mean, I guess the whole story is that the National Defense Authorization Act passed over the president's veto, right? It no. became law. And that happened a couple of days after the original notice of proposed rulemaking was announced. I think it happened on January 1st, is, is I think right. I think that's right, yeah. It became law, yeah. It, did, and it was overridden, and the act became law on January right. 1st. And so the NDAA is this giant omnibus bill. It's got a whole bunch of stuff in it. Uh, and it's like thousands of pages. You don't want to read the whole thing cover to cover. And I didn't. I'll admit that. I read a part of it. Uh, there's a part of it that is um, language that was originally in another bill last Congress um, dealing with the Bank Secrecy Act and amendments to the Bank Secrecy Act to improve our ability to stop money laundering and terrorist financing and things like that. It was the Illicit Cash Act um, from, from last Congress. And so it, it changes the statutory law that Treasury uses as the ground for its authority to do everything it does with respect to AML. Um, doesn't change it significantly, but it does change it with respect to cryptocurrencies. It, it does a few things. It says that um, money transmission includes moving currency or currency substitutes, which was already FinCEN's regulatory policy, but now it is codified in law. It says that currency exchange can include crypto um, currencies by saying currency or currency substitutes. And it says that monetary instruments, which are the things that you file currency transaction reports on, monetary instruments are things like cash, cashier's checks, other bearer instruments, commercial paper, presumably, um, that monetary instruments, the definition of monetary instruments can be expanded by the Secretary of Treasury in a rulemaking to include currency substitutes. And so this new law, and we can talk about the, the implications of this new law later, maybe. I don't think they're particularly grave, but we can talk about them. Definitely gives the secretary power to add cryptocurrencies to the list of monetary instruments in a spe specific way. They would have a rulemaking and they'd say, this is why these things are substitutes for dollars or substitutes for cashier's checks. And they'd say, because of our statutory authority, which allows us to add substitutes, we're adding substitutes to the definition of monetary instruments, which means you'll have to file currency transaction reports on those transactions if you're a bank or a financial institution. Now, as Jerry said, this law gets passed over the president's veto um, January 1st. So this was not law when the notice of proposed rulemaking came out. And the notice of proposed rulemaking was deliberately adding uh, uh, and transparently adding cryptocurrency to the definition of monetary instruments using some other statutory authority. Well, wait a minute. If they, if, if they weren't citing this future new law to yeah. give them the power to do it, then what are they citing? What are they citing? So it was weird. So I, after reading the NDAA, because we were just reading it because we knew it had some crypto stuff in it and want to be sure, I went back to the notice of proposed rulemaking. I thought like, well, wait a minute. What, what are, are they grounding it in? I should have I done as Justice Frankfurter always suggested, um, uh, read the statute, read the statute, read the statute, the three steps to good statutory interpretation. I should have done that at the start of the rulemaking, but we were a little rushed. And so I jumped to constitutional law uh, instead of, first questioning whether the statute 
the Bank Secrecy Act, actually allows or would allow the secretary to do this rulemaking. But so the NDA got me to finally read the statute more carefully with respect to the proposed rule change. And lo and behold, they did something strikingly weird. Like, I'm thinking it was rushed there, too. And I'm sure there are lawyers there who were probably like slapping their head like, what what, what do you why are we doing it this way? But it was just like, get it out, get it out. Because what they did is they, they, they said, we are not, they were very clear in several places, footnotes and an end in the body, we are not adding currency substitutes to the definition of monetary instruments, which of course they would not really necessarily be able to do because the NDAA hadn't passed yet. They said, we are treating them as if they are monetary instruments pursuant to our um, record-keeping uh, requirement authority in another part of the Bank Secrecy Act. And so I went to that part and I said, well, wait, is there... Is there a passage in that other part that says you can treat things like monetary instruments for recording and record keeping purposes, even if you don't add them to the definition? And there isn't really. But what there is, is a parenthetical statement in the section that says the secretary can um, the secretary can prescribe reports to be filed, uh, records to be kept rather by financial institutions about monetary instruments. After that, it says in parentheses, uh, or it says about cash, about U.S. currency. And then in parentheses, it says, or other monetary instruments as the secretary prescribes. And, you know, a common sense reading of that statutory language would say, right, they can prescribe that other things are monetary instruments. That's that other section. But they kept saying, we're not doing that. We're not redefining monetary instruments. They said, we're just relying on this ability to prescribe that other things be treated as monetary instruments that's found in this parenthetical statement in the statute, apart from the definition of monetary instruments. So it was all kind of, I mean, this is, this is just weird. And make no mistake, the Bank Secrecy Act has tons of authority for the secretary to use and potentially abuse, but still be following the letter of the law. The fact is they just did it weird this time. And the NDAA kind of obviates this or, or, or uh, moots this argument because now there is statutory authority, but it doesn't for the original rulemaking. It's just more solid evidence that this was rushed and they should go back and try again and and do it in a thoughtful way rather than just like shoving this down the throats of crypto businesses. Yeah, and speaking of just evidence of rushed, the, the, the very fact they've given 15 days and then 45 days more just puts a lie to the idea that there was any kind of emergency here. Right. Right. So anyhow, so that's um, where we are. Um, So there is really still an active comment period. Um, We may yet file again. Um, And the reason for that is we really have said nothing about CTRs. Um, And I'm not sure we have anything to say because as we said before, it's, you know, it's sort of creating parody. Um, but we'll have, you know, we have a little bit more time to think about it. I mean, it's, it's a good opportunity at least to get into the record, our constitutional objections to the entire edifice, but say, you know, like these are looming constitutional issues inherent in any warrantless data collection, which to be clear, this is right. Um, but, uh, we are, um, gratified or, or not gratified. We are, uh, comfortable for the moment with equal treatment with existing financial institutions. Right. 
maybe not even comfortable. We'll just say like, if this is going to happen, it has to be equal treatment with existing financial institutions. Can't be extraordinary. Yeah. Right. And I mean, look, I mean, we have to um, take our hats off to FinCEN that they've always been technology neutral mm-hmm. in how they've approached their regulation. And this rule would have been a big stain on that. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I have expectations that, you know, they will strive to avoid, you know, going a route that's not technology neutral. So, so um, let's talk about the NDAA just a little bit more. Um, basically, the reason you were reading it is that a lot of folks on crypto law Twitter um, were really, um, what's the word, uh, uh, pearl clutching, <laughs> um, hand rubbing about the NDAA because it did have this section specifically about crypto and anti-money laundering and giving the secretary all kinds of new power. Um, and we were sort of um, taken aback by the uh, 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 t- taken back by this a little bit because, as you say, Peter, we've been tracking the bill that ultimately became you know, that got put into the NDAA that had all this language was Alyssa Cash yeah. tracking this for years, and we've been involved in you know, conversations with the authors of the bill. And quite frankly, you know, the, the, the bill that ultimately became law is much better than some earlier drafts. Uh, so, that yeah. Was, um, so, you know, we knew what was basically in the bill. Um, we knew it had been included in the NDAA. We knew the NDAA had passed. Um, so when we saw people um, kind of talking about it in a concerned fashion, we're like, well, wait a minute, did, did something change? Um, and so maybe, I don't know, Peter, can you talk a bit about what people might've been concerned about and, you know, why maybe it's not bad as people think. So it does, to be clear, empower the secretary to add crypto to the definition of monetary instruments, um, which would then make crypto transactions with financial institutions, uh, like Bitcoin exchanges and things like that. Uh, subject to things like CTR reporting if they're over $10,000. So to the extent you had a strategy as an advocate for crypto that involved, I don't think exchangers should ever have to be subject to CTR reporting. And there are, as we said, lots of good arguments for why that should be the case, why they shouldn't be subject, because really no one should be subject because this is a massive warrantless data collection statute. And the law enforcement should use warrants to get information from banks, not just hoover up everybody's bank records, even when there's no suspicion of crime. So if your goal was to stop CTR reporting from getting any broader, expanding anywhere beyond cash and cashier's checks, um, then this law is a setback for you because it gives firm statutory authority to enable that. Um, But again, you know, we have enough trouble maintaining parity with the traditional financial institution as far as Bank Secrecy Act requirements um, and, and fighting off extraordinary requirements that would only apply to crypto and be much more strict than what banks have to do when they deal in dollars. And so I think equal treatment is a more defensible ground to stand on now, unless we're going to join up with the banks or join up with, you know, traditional finance advocates to just overturn the entirety of, of the Bank Secrecy Act on constitution. Well, I don't think they're actually, it, it, there's no momentum there. 
No. Well, I don't, th- I don't think they're, you know, they're experts at compliance. Right. <laughs> so, so this closes a door that might've been open. I don't even think it was open because despite our statutory argument in the recent rulemaking, uh, if they hadn't relied on the parenthetical authority and had instead just relied on their authority to define monetary instruments, which they already have flexibility to do, uh, and if they'd said, yes, we are in this rulemaking changing the definition of monetary instruments to include crypto, they might have been able to make the case that um, even prior to the NDAA, you could add things to the list of monetary instruments that are of similar material to bearer instruments uh, effectively. And you can argue that a Bitcoin is of similar material to a bearer instrument because it's passed from person to person and whoever owns it owns the value. I would argue that that's actually not a good way to think about crypto and maybe not even sufficient for that particular requirement in the law because, and this is a bit of a tangent, but it's an interesting one, I think. People say Bitcoin's a bearer instrument all the time. They're wrong. It's bearer in the sense that like, a remote control is bearer. The person holding the remote control has power over the TV. So the bearer has the power, but it's not an instrument. Instruments, financial instruments, mean some sort of written document that evidences an obligation between parties. Like a bearer stock certificate, like in Die Hard, um, what Alan Rickman's character is after. Bearer bonds, yeah. Uh, it entitles the bearer to show up and get the value of the bond from the bond issuer. It's a contractual relationship and it's a piece of paper that evidences that. When you own a Bitcoin, because you actually have it, and you have the private keys that control the amount on the blockchain, no one owes you anything. And that, that's the point of the damn system is I don't want to rely on anyone for the, for the value that I want to have in my control, except myself. Um, you can't go to the bank of Bitcoin and get your Bitcoin redeemed for dollars. You have no contractual right with anything that we could imagine called the bank of Bitcoin. It doesn't exist and the contractual right doesn't exist. So it's not an instrument. It's just a commodity like gold. Having gold doesn't entitle you to get the dollar value of the gold. You can find a liquid market for it if such is available and trade it, but that's not at all like an instrument. So anyway, I don't think there are instruments. Yeah. And, and the, um, so I think the, the root cause of this confusion is that before the invention of Bitcoin, there was no such thing as a digital commodity. Right. right? Digital, I mean, Bitcoin invented the idea of digital scarcity, which was before Bitcoin kind of impossible, physically, you know, it's kind of impossible. So, um, you know, it really what it is, it's, as you say, it's a digital commodity. Um, yeah. And people just have not wrapped their minds around that as a category of things in the world now. Yeah. Cause before there were like MP3s. Right. And it's like music and I get value from this thing and I like it and I can have it. It's not an instrument. Having an MP3 gives you the ability to play the music. It doesn't give you a right. Well, copyright's complicated, but we won't talk about that. It's not, yeah. You're, you're stretching the analogy. But the, but the problem was that they weren't scarce. You can make infinite copies of MP3 file and share it around. And now everyone has the music. And the thing that changes is it's commodity like, uh, in that it's also scarce, like a valuable commodity, like gold, rather than a infinite supply commodity like oxygen in the air or something like that. Right. Okay. So NDA. <laughs> um, so one thing that maybe is positive about the NDAA, Peter, is that it potentially puts cryptocurrency 
in the I don't you know this way better than me in the category of currency exchange. Yes. So this is interesting. Um, somebody who wants to start a maybe kind of you know what interesting little crypto business might might be curious about this. Yeah, you know, you know who, who this makes me think of is um, Chain Tip. Do you remember Change Change Tip? Change, change tip? tip. I think that's what it was. Where you would tip people on Reddit and Twitter. Okay. Yeah, yeah you tweet somebody. You know, pay at Peter one beer, and it would send you five dollars. You know, it would sort of credit you five bucks. And, and a big impediment to those business models is that there's no um, there's no lower bound to the size of a transaction uh, that exempts you from money transmission licensing requirements and from MSB registration at FinCEN. Even if you're just helping customers move $1, you're technically required to have the full AML um, program. Now, that's not true about currency exchange. So so think about ChangeTip, right? Let's, let's, Let's explain this. So I started a company called ChangeTip. What it does is um, it lets people uh, deposit Bitcoin into a hosted wallet at the company. Um, And then people can connect their Twitter account and you can basically pay each other using Twitter. But here's the thing. Uh, The company does not allow any wallet from any person to have more than $100 in it. And transactions can't be more than $10. So this is for really literally for tipping, for like little for fun, right? So this is an enterprise that would never be used for money laundering or for terrorist financing, right? Wallet limits of a hundred bucks, transaction limits of $10, right? This thing would still be subject to all the crazy compliance that a Coinbase yeah. would do. And, 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 you know, especially any, any kind of movement of people's money. So maybe that your customer already has Bitcoin in, in their change tip wallet and you're helping them send it to someone they want to tip. And it's like a, a 10 cent tip or something like that. That's technically money transmission. But I think the biggest problem that a lot of small businesses that want to do crypto stuff have is onboarding their customers. Right. Because a lot of people who are not crypto native don't have Bitcoins. And so if you're asking, you're saying, well, this is a cool microtransaction application where you can tip very small amounts or you could pay Wi-Fi routers, you could do all kinds of things, uh, come use it. And then people are like, well, wait, I don't have Bitcoin. I need to buy Bitcoin to use this. That's a huge barrier, um, both psychologically and just transaction cost wise to getting new users. And you'd say, well, well, what if um, I'm not going to hold people's Bitcoin for them? I'm going to build a decentralized change tip app. Uh, which would probably be a better way to do it. Yeah. Um, so there's no custodial risk, but I need to onboard people. And so even if it's non-custodial, I'm going to need to have effectively a brief custodial exchange uh, where I give the customer Bitcoins because they send me some dollars. That is traditionally treated as money transmission and traditionally treated as money transmission, even if it's only $10 or $100 maximum worth of dollars for Bitcoin transactions. And so you can't do that unless you do the full registering with FinCEN and money transmission licenses in all the various states, which might still be an issue, but we can get to that in a second. And that transaction doesn't even look like money transmission. That transaction is currency exchange. Right. It's the same thing that companies do when they open a shop in an airport and take your euros and give you dollars. And it's the same thing that in the Bank Secrecy Act, 
If you're doing less than a thousand dollars, I I have to check. I think, I think it's fifteen hundred. I think it's some thousand dollar ish number, yeah. and it's I think per person per day, which is actually pretty generous because people can keep coming back. Um, then you're not you're not a currency exchanger under the Bank Secrecy Act. If you're only doing transactions under that amount, you don't have to register, and that's great. And that would that would then if crypto exchange was in currency exchange, which the NDAA says it is now, um, then in theory, if all you're doing is exchanging dollars for Bitcoin to onboard people to a decentralized change tip platform or something like that, uh, in theory, as long as they're under the threshold, you would be out of the federal anti-money laundering rules, in theory. Now, so FinTech might come back and say, we're still treating it as money transmission, even though it's also currency exchange. Yeah. But, so but somebody could make this argument. There, there are two ways that if you're a company that wants to try, there's two ways to do it. One is to just start doing it and wait to see if FinCent shows up. <laughs> Always uh, a safe option. <laughs> the other thing you could do is go to FinCent request um, basically a no action letter. They do better than no action. All them administrative rulings. Administrative ruling where you describe, here's my business. Here's what I want to do. Is this covered or not? And they will give you an answer that they make public so that others who are similarly situated can basically do the same thing. Can can kind of rely on it, but they'll also say, nobody can rely on this because it's not really law. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So anyhow, um, we don't, you know, we don't think the NDAA is the end of the world by any stretch. And indeed, maybe there's a little silver lining. There's another silver lining. Yep. Um, so some of you all might remember, we filed a comment a couple months ago on the proposal to lower the um, reporting threshold for SARS transactions. Yeah. Now, the NDAA, it's interesting. It it asks for a, um, was it for SARS transaction? No, it was for, so travel. for travel rule was travel. the, was the, yeah. was the uh, comment we filed a couple months ago. So the NDAA, um, not talking about travel rule, but talking about SARS reporting requirements says there should be a study about adjusting the SARS threshold, um, not the travel rule threshold. And one thing that must be considered is whether it should be inflation adjusted. Right. Which would be great because right now with the dollar constantly losing value by Bitcoin, no, just kidding. <laughs> um, with the dollar constantly losing value over the last 40 years, uh, we have, you know, suspicious activity reports and other reports filed for much lower value transactions than they were when those rules were originally in, in place back when the value of the currency was higher. So this is that should be inflation adjusted. And this is by statute. And this is this would be by well the statute doesn't say it has to be inflation adjusted the statute I mean, says that my my point is that the amounts oh yeah yeah for the reporting requirements are set in statute yeah and so what this is doing is simply Telling asking for a report yeah and it's asking for the report to consider inflation adjustment so you can imagine that this would become an input back into the Congress's you know hamster wheel yeah where hopefully they'll spit out something else that'll be you know put into a bill that would the president will veto and Congress yeah. will return and et cetera. And honestly, this should be, this should be a big part of the conversation whenever there's an adjustment yeah. to a threshold in the bank secrecy act, including this travel rule adjustment that 
we made a comment on, which was drastic. It proposed reducing it all the way down to $250, which is a lot more record keeping obligations. All right. So the last thing that we want to talk about is Gary Gensler. So Gary Gensler, um, former CFTC chair, former treasury official, former uh, Goldman Sachs uh, banker, um, was named uh, or was nominated to be SEC chairman by President-elect Biden. Um, and people have been asking us what we think about this and what this means for crypto, because Gary um, has, over the past few years, taken a keen interest in crypto. And indeed, he's been teaching um, uh, about cryptocurrency and blockchain and whatever else um, over at MIT at the business school. Mm-hmm. And um, we've had the chance over the past few years to get to know him um, and to um you know, talk to him many times and to um, be on panels with him. And um, and so uh, why don't you go first, Peter? What do you think uh, a Gensler SEC means uh, for crypto? Yeah, so Gensler is very focused on investor protection, but that's not wrong. And it would be a, a strange day in the universe, which is getting always stranger, where any administration, let alone a Democratic administration, appointed someone to the SEC who wasn't very passionate about investor protection. That would be weird. So there's nothing weird about that. I think that um, his knowledge of crypto is, on the whole, a benefit to crypto policy. Because as we've said frequently on this podcast before and in other places, most bad policy comes from a place of ignorance, not from a place of malice. And I've, you know, personally had some actually really fun conversations with Gary Gensler about things like how the Lightning Network works and um, how do ICOs work. And, you know, we've, we've always been pretty open kimono at Coin Center. There's lots of ICOs that we agree were done effectively as unregistered securities issuance. And that's not good. That's, this technology should be about, you know, permissionless payments and ensuring that people have the freedom and ability to pay each other, even if they live in a totalitarian state. It shouldn't be about finding ways to get people to give you a lot of money on your promise to build something. Like, understand that there have been projects funded by ICOs that are doing good things, but ICOs themselves, the dubious area and very hard to defend when they, you know, quite possibly run, a, run, run afoul of securities laws. And so I completely agree with that. And I think that um, people who um, complain about the SEC um, are actually complaining about the securities laws, right? They wish we had different securities laws that allowed people to do different things. And we don't. And maybe we should, but we don't. And so when the SEC enforces the law, um, and I get it. The Howey test is a flexible test, so they have flexibility in how they enforce it. But when they do that, um, you know, they're just doing their job. Um, uh, your beef is really with Congress. So Gary is somebody who, like you, I have found to always be incredibly thoughtful, right? He's not shoot from the hip. He's very, very thoughtful. Um, and, uh, and he is very much committed to investor protection. So I suspect we're going to see um, 
uh, a lot more enforcement related to cryptocurrency. I'm not sure that would be any different no matter right. the SEC chair is. But with Gary, at least you have somebody who understands crypto inside and out. And so what that means is um, that when you go in to talk to him or to people at the SEC now, um, which this is always increase, increasingly the case, but you know, especially with him there now, you're not going to have to start explaining from 101. What's a blockchain? What, right? What's mining? What's, you know, you, he knows this, right? So you can have a more sophisticated conversation and that should only be good. And I think there are people who might think, well, the fact that he knows crypto inside and out means he knows where all the bodies are buried, right? Um, well, if he does, you know, that only means that he's going to go after things that are illegal. Yeah. And if they're illegal, like, you know, I don't know, I can't help you. Um, we have to change the law in Congress. Um, so anyhow, that's kind well, of like, so, so two things like the stuff. So we wrote in 2015, comprehensive framework yeah. for securities regulation in the cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency adjacent space. Um, and in that report in 2015, this is before the Dow uh, mm-hmm. uh, and the and the Dow hack and the Dow report from the SEC. In that report, we say, look, there's a credible case that under the flexible standard of the Howey test, certain things that we treat as cryptocurrencies will be regulated as securities when they're issued and sold to the American public. And we said, look, one area that you have to watch out for is, for example, heavily marketed sales of pre-mined coins when the seller is the creator of the coin and really the person upon every, whom everyone is relying for the future value and prospects and functionality of the coin. And so, you know, it, it took a little while to get there um, because, you know, the, the early enforcement actions were the easiest. They were, this is someone who doesn't even have a thing yet. They haven't even made a thing yet. And they're asking for money to build a thing. The pre-sale cases. So this would be like uh, Munchie, where they were like promising to develop an app that would help you, you know, rate restaurants or something like that and give you coins. And that's uh, fine to do as long as you register yep. or do a reg D or something. Which, uh, and I'm not endorsing block stacks approach here with the stacks token, but they did that. And they actually did it not even as a reg D, as a reg A, um, you know, fully compliant sale. And it seems like they're doing okay now. I'm not endorsing that approach necessarily, but there are ways to comply, either Reg D or Reg A. Um, but doing it without complying is, is going to be a situation where you're obviously like promising something that doesn't even exist and taking people's money for it. And that's expectation of profits, relying on your efforts, and someone's investing their money in, in your common enterprise. It's, it's all, the, all the factors of the Howey test. The harder case is a case where you do already have something. It is a token. It's out there in the world. It's transactable. It might even be decentralized in a way, um, wherein the, the, the mining isn't all you as the original developer of the coin, or the, um, the software is um, mostly you, but there's a few other developers working on it. If you, as your business, as a way of making your business profitable, have a bunch of that coin, maybe the majority of it that's actually in the world, and you periodically sell it off to the public while simultaneously promising that you're going to continue working to make this coin more valuable, that promise 
paired with the sale of what might be a technically a non-security asset, just sort of like a marker or a token or a piece of land in the case of Howie, the combination of the promises, people's reliance on the promises with the sale of the physical object or virtual object in this case could be an investment contract. And so, you know, maybe that's where the SEC goes now. You know, maybe that's what Gary Gensler is going to be focused on. But the important message here for people who are very worried about the SEC and crypto is this is not the same analysis as you'd apply for something like Bitcoin. This is not the same analysis as you'd apply for something that is uh, already developed, decentralized, peer-to-peer, and even if it's ongoingly developed, which Bitcoin is and, and Ethereum is and Zcash is and a lot of cryptos that, that are doing good work in the world are, there's lots of different people maintaining that software. And none of them, this would be the argument, and I think it's a solid argument, are the people upon whom investors rely for the c- continued value of their investment. Yeah. So, you know... Uh, I think clearly that's a direction that the SEC is going. Um, what I think is going to be interesting to see with, because I, I think they would go in that direction no matter who was the chair. So what's going to be interesting to see with Gensler as the chair um, is going into more interesting directions. So um, decentralized exchange is going to you know, come up in the next four years and it'll be interesting to see how he um tackles that. And look, you know, the, the argument that we're always going to make, Peter, uh, you know, is that decentralized exchange, as you know, we've said forever, uh, is a verb, not a noun. Um, and um, that writing, you know, writing and publishing software alone can't be a crime and it can't be a violation of any law because it's First Amendment protected speech. Gary is somebody who I think at the very least understands that argument or could understand that argument when yep. we make you wouldn't have to go and <laughs> explain what open source is, right? You would get that. So, but on the other hand, if you're running the only available front end to right. a platform that allows for decentralized exchange and you're advertising, hey, buy a tokenized version of Tesla stock here. Yeah, that, that's different. That's not, what you're doing is not decentralized. It's centralized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, maybe we should end there. Um, this was fun. Probably should have ended like, Half an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks, and I think um, just seeing how this is going, uh, we should just see how more geekier and in the weeds and wonky we can get with each uh, subsequent episode. Good. All right.